The movie Casablanca released in January 1943 was one of the most financially and critically acclaimed movies in Warner Brothers history. It was an unlikely hit at the time, as most Americans opposed involvement in a new European or Asian war, after World War I. However, most current historians credit this film as inspiring almost tens of thousands of enlistments among young men in the United States Armed Services. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was willing to shoot Captain Rano, and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Helsley, the original Father, and today we're going to reveal the dark underbelly of a cherished Hollywood classic from 1943 that you probably thought was just a corny little romance pick. The movie's name is Casablanca, and it's celebrating its 80th birthday this winter. And, as usual, I am joined by my millennial co-host, Ellie, from the great state of Alaska, who's been hiding from the winter in, did I get this right, Ellie, a Mexican resort? Ah, si, senor. Yes, me and my multiple margaritas. The flavor of the day changed multiple times a day. And uh, yeah, it was a great way to warm up and get a little bit of a tan. Unfortunately, I was blinding everyone else on the beach with my super white skin tone from being inside for the last few months. But it was very fun. But I'm, I'm back home now for all my fellow Alaskans who listen to this podcast. Don't worry, we're, uh, we're all suffering together in the cold. Mm-hmm. So you're not one of those people before you go to a, a warm equatorial location, you, you hit a tanning booth for a few sessions to kind of warm up your skin so that you don't burn and you kind of kind of get a head start on a tan are you not one of those people for multiple reasons probably i mean i don't think there's super it's bad for your skin i guess right i I already have enough wrinkles anyway so i don't really want more (laughs) but i also okay you know i'd rather stick out for four days on the beach amongst a bunch of strangers than i would stick out amongst amongst all my friends here for a few weeks as being like the awkwardly out of place tan one Ah, because then they all know that it's not legit they're like, where did you go? I'm like, oh, no, I've been here right. the whole time. Okay. And we are also joined by our artificial intelligence engine that is just as timeless as the movie Casablanca. Her name is Bernice. Thank you. I think this movie is very amusing. The first half is all one-liners. But I'm not sure I buy the love story and, sorry, there is no way I would sleep with Humphrey Bogart. Oh, you wouldn't? No, but Paul Henreid, the actor that plays Victor Laszlo, Bergman's husband, I'd be all over that. I would fuck that guy if I was gay. 
He's cool. <laughs> I mean, he's been dead for decades, but I mean, if I was living in 1940. Yeah, they all looked great in those white suits. Oh, they do, man. It was like, wow, you know, being a refugee looks awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't look anything like the Syrian stuff that I'm cutting videos about every day. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe if so, we... Or the guys, the Ukrainian immigrants on the Polish border. I mean, it's like, how come they don't have a double-breasted Armani <laughs> and a martini in there? What all, these, <laughs> what all these humanitarian groups need to do is start donating white suits and martini glasses to all the refugees. And then, there we go. And then they'll definitely have a place to go <laughs> and cigarettes by the gross apparently they must fly them in on the because <laughs> like how how many cigarettes did you smoke in that scene uh, oh dear. yeah there i i feel like i got lung cancer just from watching that and poor mr bogart you know he was 44 when he made this film by 56 he passed away yeah of you guessed it cancer mm-hmm. not surprised yeah. Anyways. So, Ellie, we're not a movie podcast per se, so I don't think we should talk about whether this is a good movie or a bad movie in large. We'll leave that to the many other folks that do movie review podcasts. But I am just curious. Did you like this movie or not? I did like this movie. Okay. And I've seen it a few times. You know, I think we had to watch it one time in high school or something. Oh, really? Um, I do. I do. Yeah, I, I do like it. I like the storyline. I like, you know, just some of the interesting jokes and quips. And there are so many timeless lines that have carried on from that movie. And I, I like it. Yeah. Do you buy the love story between Rick and Ilsa? And, 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 and by that, it's not just the writing. I mean... Is the chemistry there? Yeah. So that was one of my favorite parts about diving more into the details of the production Mm -hmm. for this podcast. Even the actors did not know who she was going to fall for in the end. You know, like they actually didn't write the final scene. They didn't have the final, like the finale of the movie ready to go until like, the day that they shot that final scene because they they filmed this movie in in sequence i think is that what it's called for yeah so so even they didn't know and i think bergman asked the director she said like who sh- who am i supposed to love more mm-hmm. and they said well love them both equally because we don't know how it's going to end i think it's just really interesting because she does have really spectacular acting probably because of that because she actually doesn't know who she's supposed to be falling for which is probably similar to like in real life you know if one person is caught between two people and they don't really know who they want to choose you know then like they're trying to follow their feelings to the end yeah so i i fall for it okay okay and maybe i'm biased because i've read too many history books about uh, Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. And and I think it was somewhat well-known at the time because up until this movie, Humphrey Bogart had always been a gangster. That's had been his... And usually he was the bad guy who got killed at the end because under the production code, you had to die at the end. All Anybody who was bad had to die at the end. And so he was very, very extremely nervous about being a leading man. The, the movie exactly prior to this that got him this role, which was very successful, was The Maltese Falcon, which he wasn't technically he wasn't a gangster. He was a private detective, but he was still sort of on the fringe of the law. And he wasn't, you know, and the girl that he was dealing with was she was also a crook. So 
so that's why, you know, I know he was extremely nervous about doing this. She was okay with it because she'd been the girlfriend or the wife and everything she'd ever done. And he'd always just been the evil gangster. So to be the romantic leading man, you know, what were you before? What did you do? You know, he's just, like, he's just like, you could just tell that he's cringing at every single line. He's like, I don't know what I get. You know, and he kisses weird. Yeah. He sort of sucks. He really sucks face. You can see why, you know, they used to say in college, hey, stop, stop bogarting that doobie. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, and that's how you could probably tell who the film nerds were in college is probably because they kissed like that. Like they thought that that's the way you're supposed to kiss because like they were like watching Casablanca <laughs> their whole, <laughs> their whole childhood. <laughs> This is how a zombie kisses on Walking Dead. <laughs> <laughs> Inhale below the nose. So I thought we could talk about the, because this is a scandal sheet and not a movie review site. I thought we could talk about the social and political context that sort of resulted in this movie. But first, I did want to hand it to the marketing folks at Warner Brothers we may barely have mentioned it, but it is an 80-year-old movie. It came out in 1943, a black-and-white movie, and they're actually re-releasing this around the country here and also in Europe and other English-speaking countries. So, And apparently it's doing really, really well. It's like in the top five. So 80 years later, wow, happy birthday, Casablanca, and congrats, people at Warner Brothers. Yeah, ironically, I didn't see it on the movie list when I was in Casablanca last month. So <laughs> interesting. That's funny. <laughs> well, is Casablanca, um, is it English speaking or Arab speaking? Uh, they speak Arabic and then the compulsory secondary language in school is French. And so most people will also speak French um, in like the high tourist areas that you'll get a lot of English speakers as well. But really, if you know French, you're going to get along much farther than you would if you speak English. Well, I mean, if if I grew up in Mar I mean, it's about a period of time during the French colonial occupation of Morocco and other parts of North Africa. I probably wouldn't look on fondly at, at you know, this would be like, the, you know, the indigenous people of North America, you know, looking back at the pilgrims or something. And it's like, I don't know if I like that time that much. Vichy France, the Nazis. It's like everybody just kept coming and then the allies came through and they treated us just as shitty as everybody else. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see why they're probably not, you know, releasing the Casablanca 80th anniversary edition in Casablanca. But, um, you know, may maybe it's just because I also didn't see it, you know, listed at the movie theater. But mm -hmm. yeah, so, I mean, I think that a movie being 80 years old is impressive because that means it's already been on Medicare for what, like 15 years. If movies could qualify for Medicare <laughs> in good health. That's right. <clears throat> yes. We'll have to listen to the state of the union, the dress to see if it's, it gets to stay alive. Um, <laughs> so Bernice, I don't know if most of our listeners have seen this movie or not. It's only been on TV like a billion times. But for those who haven't or who haven't recently, what is Casablanca about? And please set up the context of its production a little bit for us. Certainly. Casablanca is a 1942 American romantic drama film starring Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, and Paul Henreid. Filmed and set during World War II. 
it focuses on an American expatriate, Bogart, who must choose between his love for a woman, Bergman, and helping her husband, Henried, a Czechoslovak resistance leader, escape from the Vichy-controlled city of Casablanca to continue his fight against the Germans. In the lead-up to World War II in the 1930s and then after the war officially began in 1939, the United States remained neutral. This allowed the United States companies, such as the movie studios, to continue to do business with huge European customers such as Germany, Italy, and Spain. Therefore, there were no anti-fascist or anti-war movies produced by the mainstream studios. However, after the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii on December 7, 1941, all the Axis powers declared war on the United States creating a sudden need for propaganda promoting the war to American citizens who would be asked to make enormous sacrifices. So, war movies in general are not necessarily my favorite genre, but every movie, every movie I've seen that is set in World War II was made long after the war had ended. And there's nothing ambiguous in those flicks about Nazis. They're total bad guys in all of the recent World War II movies. You know, take something like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or... Is are there? There's a lot of Nazis like in Saving Private Ryan, right? Like they do a pretty good job of depicting. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah, okay. It's a, it's a yeah. definitely a World War. So, I was like, I know it's World War Two. <laughs> okay, I promise I've seen it, and like I've, but I'm like, they do depict. Well, that's the thing. I mean, every single year there's a film with Nazis in it. Yeah. You know, I mean, every. I mean, we just we can't get enough of Nazis right. in this country. Okay. So, okay, yeah, so take something, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark or, you know, Saving Private Ryan and, you know, the Nazis are, you know, like these really terrible um, people in the current, you know, state. However, I was really surprised to learn that Americans were really on the fence in the 30s about Hitler and the Nazis. Right. And I was, too, because, like, I mean, I grew up with, you know, my dad was nominally in World War II, I'm sort of a a little different in that my parents waited until they were 40 to get married and have kids, which is very uh, different than most people in their generation. But, he, you know, he, so he loved to watch all these old movies and because he was alive then. He was actually alive then. And he had been a soldier in the army, even though they never actually sh- sent him off. He never got deployed. And, uh, you know, he'd say, hey, Thad, watch, watch this stuff. And, you know, so like you're saying, it's just you, you can't even imagine anybody having any that World War II was like Vietnam or like Afghanistan or Iraq where somebody was protesting, where somebody was against it. Because it's just it's like complete, absolute, total consensus that these were the bad guys. Although that wasn't the case. And I think that's historically one of the things that makes this a very interesting film in that it was kind of uh, sort of a giant, at least initially, didn't turn out to be, I mean, the way it turned out, it turned out pretty good for Warner Brothers, the studio that made it. But initially, and maybe we can go back to that timeline we had, it was kind of a big gamble because the U.S. after World War One was very, very much against getting involved in another European war. Yeah, like most people had that isolationist view of the United States and they had that opinion that like we need to stay out of this. This is their problem. You know, like we let enough people die. It was like what over, you know, well over 100,000 troops died in World War One, and they were like, we're not doing that right. again. And so, you know, it was it was really interesting to learn that you know, there was not any anti-Nazi media 
in the United States in the 30s. No. Too many people here were like, hey, you know, Hitler sounds like a good guy to me. He pulled him out of depression, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And in 1938, he was actually Time Magazine's Man of the Year. I know. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, of course, let's let's recognize that uh, Donald Trump was um, uh, 2016 Man of the Year, too. That's a good so. point. <laughs> I would say. But anyways, no, depending. I mean, it does it does say that there was a different view of him than there is now. Right. I would also argue that Hitler was a much more terrible person than Donald Trump, no matter how much CNN you like to watch. You know, I still think like Hitler did much more terrible things than Donald Trump. Well, yeah. And you got to kind of look at the, the timing, too, because that was 1938. He didn't start World War Two until September 1st, 1939. So he didn't shoot anybody, not one person. Now, he was annexing territory mm-hmm. saying, hey, Austria, guess what? I own you now. Sort of like, you know, like Putin. Um, uh, Putin and Crimea and stuff like that. He was just annexing, going boom, 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 Czechoslovakia, me, Rhineland, me. And then Britain and France would say, okay, that's it. Last time you get to do that. And he's like, okay, except for this one. I would take this one too. <laughs> like, and then finally they got around to stopping him. He's like the, like the kid who's winning on the Monopoly board. You know, he's just like, that's mine. That's mine. That's mine. That's mine. That's right. Boardwalk, Park Place, Marvin Gardens. Boom, boom, boom. All your hotels, they're mine. Houses, give them up. Yeah. And, you know, and and even before that, you know, it's like 93% of Americans did not want to get involved in foreign wars. No. Even though they did not. By that time, by the time that they did that survey, most of continental Europe, half of Russia, and much of North Africa was already in his control. I know. And it's amazing. And, um, but everybody was like, like you say, isolationist. And then from the standpoint of the the studios, a third to a half of their money came from Europe. So they were not going to make any anti-Nazi movies. They weren't anti-German, anti-war, anti-anything. They were just going to keep serving up romantic comedies and whatever other Depression era crap they were making and pretend that there was no war going on, which is what they did. Well, but also not to always tie it into what's going on now, but I mean, right now, China's the largest market for most of the movies that we make here. And so, Correct. you know, that is definitely one of the reasons why you're just getting all these remakes of, you know, all the Marvel and DC and, you know, Fast and Furious and James Bond, your favorite franchise, you know, <laughs> Very good point. And, and a lot of times, even when they do those, they have to do special recuts for China yeah. because there might be something in there that could that could even hint at the value of democracy. Yes. So <laughs> or freedom or, or anything. So the studio that that ends up making Casablanca is called Warner Brothers because the people that ran it were actually brothers. Now, they had. They had come from Poland, and they they left here at a young age. Uh, their father, the family, brought him at a young age. Their their actual Jewish name was Wankskolaser, and uh, they anglicized it later. But I mean, they they came here fleeing anti-Semitism and uh, purges, which are called pro- pogroms. So they were 
legitimately, unlike some of the, a lot of the studios, I think all the studios, maybe except Disney, were actually owned by Jewish families, but they had come much earlier and they didn't come here actually fleeing oppression. So maybe they didn't feel it as, as, as intensely as these guys did, especially the oldest brother who is the president, Harry. And against all, he was the first guy to try to make an anti-Nazi movie in 1939. It was called Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Everybody said, don't do it. Don't do it. He did it. It was the biggest flop. It failed everywhere. And Germany kicked him, kicked Warner Brothers movies out of Germany. Oh, see, I didn't realize Europe. that there was that level of retaliation. If, yeah, okay. it was. So so they had reason. I mean, their hands were slapped. They They had reason to to say, okay, we tried, you know, but, but, you know, Harry's point of view was, you know what? Fuck it. I, you know, I hate those fucking Nazis. And the thing was, they were all, the Warner brothers were, were very conservative Republicans. They were supporters of Hoover, who was the president before Roosevelt, but that doesn't mean they, they, they liked Nazis. Yeah. You know, they were, well, they hated communists and they hated Nazis. Right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but uh, you know, other people were like, you know, money first, dude. Money first. Yeah, we're in business here. Follow, you know, we're not we're not a social club. So you know. follow the money. Well, you know, you spoke a little bit earlier about you know the the genius behind you know their marketing team and you know, like the luck of the timing with release of this movie. Also, just shout out to the Warner Brothers for changing their name to Warner because one Scholosser Brothers studio just doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> I don't think the it doesn't would have had as much of lo- like as much longevity as it had <laughs> if we were all Well, and you, you look at all those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, like you look at like Louis B. May or something, you look at his original name and it's like 10 syllables long and you're like, oh, well, I'm glad you guys kind of, just for our sake. Yeah. That you <laughs> save a little bit of oxygen so. there. But that, I mean, that tells you something that they didn't want people to know they were Jewish, too. Right. So there was a certain amount of anti-Semitism. And one of the points we're going to bring up later is that despite the fact that Casablanca takes place, you know, it's all about refugees fleeing Europe, fleeing Nazi oppression. And yet the word Jew is never mentioned once. Nobody is identified as being a Jew. Right. Or even hinted at. Right. You know, so why are you guys all here? You just don't like France anymore? Right. <laughs> you just hate that culture of eating carbs all day and drinking wine. Yeah, exactly. And... Is it the, the heavy sauces? <laughs> and those... <laughs> I, I hate cabernet. <laughs> I hate baguettes. No more. Exactly. I don't want baguettes anymore. I prefer Moroccan food. Yeah. I think, yeah, it, and then just to, you know, move on a little bit, you know, the... When, yeah, let's move when, on. When, you know, like suddenly, you, you might have to edit out some of my ends there. Um, suddenly, Americans, particularly on the West Coast, were gripped with that terror of nightly attacked by the Japs after the Pearl Harbor attack. And, you know, even with that, you know, Europe and the Nazis were still just largely ignored, at least for a little bit. But, you know, the day after Pearl Harbor, Warner Brothers Studios bought an unproduced Broadway play called Everyone Comes to Rick's for $20,000, which, I mean, I even think that's kind of a lot today. I don't really know what playwrights make, but, you know, that was even back then. No, I mean, at the time, when you when you correct for inflation, no, that's like, that's like half a million bucks. Yeah, 
in 1941 money. So, and it was the highest. And that was dumb luck. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because the thing was, and, and, and again, by talking about the Warners and how crazy anti-fascist they were, because they're the agent of those two authors. First of all, they had never produced anything before. It's an unproduced Broadway play. It never actually made it to Broadway. They just wrote it and it never actually, I mean, people were talking about it and considering it. They shopped it to all the other studios and every other studio said, I ain't fucking touching this with a 10 foot pole. Mm -hmm. This is anti-Nazi, dude. (laughs) No fucking way. Yeah. Like we're not going to make any So those negotiations. Yeah. Right, right. So these negotiations are going on before Pearl Harbor. And then by the time, and then only Warner Brothers comes forward and says, sure, I'll give you $20,000 for that. And they're like, what? Look, if they had got, Dashiell Hammett got $6,000 for writing The Maltese Falcon. And that became, which is the movie just before this, a Warner Brothers movie that made, that was breaking records at the time. And then he only got $6,000. So that was, that was a huge deal. And it was just dumb luck that, you know, they're like, okay, so they signed the contract and guess what? Now we're in the war. Yeah. Because like Japanese, we weren't, we were officially neutral. The Japanese attack us without declaring war. And then like an hour after they, you know, killed 8,000 people, they declared war. And then, then we declare war on them and then, like, three days later, Germany and Italy declare war on us. We're like, what do we do to you fuckers? Yeah. We like your food. <laughs> like, we... What? Dude, we've been, we've been laying off. <laughs> Come on. But, okay. But like you said, I think the whole focus was on the Pacific. Was about... Because they were actually attacking us. Right. You know, they were... First it was Hawaii, and then it was the West Coast, and then there was all kinds of... It never turned out to be as bad as it is it uh, it was feared, but uh, there was crazy stuff going on there for a while. Absolutely, and actually, fun fact, just an Alaska plug: two islands yeah. on the Aleutian chain were actually taken by the Japanese during World War Two, and uh, but oh, really? it was you know Alaska was just a territory back then in forty one or forty two or much later. Oh, uh, gosh, I don't, I don't know. That's just because like uh, Pearl Harbor was part of like this massive Pacific wide takeover of like within two weeks they had taken over everything right right the philippines and the dutch west indies and blah 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 i mean i think it was near that time it was during they they for example they occupied the island of atu from june 7th of 1942 until may 30th of 1943 so almost a year Hmm. yeah and they were shelling, they were shelling like oil refineries from submarines in Washington state, in Oregon. I mean, it wasn't limited to California. They were, they were getting around, man. Yeah. Yeah. They were serious. It was definitely a big timing thing, not only with them buying the rights to Everyone Comes to Rick, which then they later changed the title of it to Casablanca and then they kind of rewrote it. You know, the other big luck aspect of this movie is that they rushed through production as quickly as possible and then they actually like they were going to premiere it on I think it was January was it in like on New Year's Day or something but then they actually rushed it to Thanksgiving Day which was only days after the Allies invaded North Africa right and actually ended up conquering Casablanca and Morocco and so it was just like tying everything together it was as if somebody were to release a movie about a Chinese spy balloon tomorrow. Right. Exactly. (laughs) 
Yeah. So, yeah, it, it really is something like that, where it's just like, just luck out, luck out. Because they were so, everybody was so worried. This thing's going to, and the people in it, I didn't put this in the timeline, but everybody involved in the movie, except for the director, Michael Cortez, who was like very, very artistic. And that's where he spent all this time in the lighting and, and all these dolly shots and stuff like that, that uh, you might think, oh, well, that must be easy to do because I've got this phone here and it weighs about three ounces. But, you know, when a camera at the time, because of it made so much noise and, and with the sound, it had to be blimped, you know, was like 400 pounds. Moving it in a shot was like a giant thing that took like six guys to do, you know, on a track. So all those dolly shots in the bar and stuff like that with people crossing in front of the camera, you're like, how the fuck yeah. did they do that, you know, on like a six, seven week shooting schedule? Right. But, um, well, that's what's good about having sets and not being on practical locations. And, <laughs> and, and that's, you know, like you just mentioned, I mean, they, they ended up filming this whole thing on a back lot at Warner Brothers Studios because there yeah. was no way with, with the war going on that they were going to, you know, be able to go on location to anywhere in Europe. So, and it's it's pretty convincing, isn't it? I mean, those opening shots with, you know, where they're kind of, kind of going down the streets of whatever Casablanca was supposed to look like. It's like like you said, well, it doesn't actually look like that. But well, everybody thought it other, did. And there were parrots all over the place. And, you know. I mean, other other Moroccan cities look like that. You know, like the little Medinas okay. in Marrakesh and Fez and Tangier. They all okay. do look like that. It's it's Casablanca itself is, I would compare it to like the Houston or Dallas of the United States. Like, you know, there are other cute little downtown areas in other cities and towns in the United States. Those are not them. Casablanca is just a big sprawling city with like way too many people. Yeah, but it also has the most beautiful name of all of them, right? Casablanca it just sounds, it rolls off the it's tongue. A, it sounds. It is a sexy name, man. That is the name. Yeah. Yeah. That was a that was a good thing to to change. Everybody comes to Rick's to Casablanca. Yeah. That is that's a really good name, mm-hmm. and it makes us all feel like we can speak. It's it's for some reason it's it's in the past yes. ten plus years. It's become si, like the, uh, Although everyone in vacation Morocco spot, speaks so. French and not Spanish, but yeah, um, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Okay, so where do we <laughs> want to go before Jew? We talked about Jew. No, no, that's okay because we yeah. should move things yeah. along. We're already at, at thirty minutes. I've, I've actually never been there either, but from people I know who success, have success. But they I guess two things I wanted to bring up about the movie itself that make it. Really, really kind of weird. Um, maybe it's not a scandal per se, but so there's this thing called the production code. And in the wake of the 1920s during the silent days, we, we hardly can remember that, you know, you could have nudity in movies. There was all kinds of scandals coming out of Hollywood, uh, sex scandals and murders and run by the mob and everything else and the federal government, you know, and again, this is the, 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 you know, the same period where prohibition is going on and the federal government is just on, okay, we're pursuing morality. We got rid of alcohol or at least we pretended we did. (laughs) Now we're going after the movies, you know, they're, they're driving down the morality of, of America. So, so, and the studios go, Oh shit, no, we don't want them doing what they did to the liquor industry where they actually interviewed, you know, went in and did a constitutional amendment and everything. They said, tell you what, we're going to do our own censorship. We'll do it ourselves. We'll do it ourselves. 
at our, at our own expense. And so they come up with this thing. They hire a bunch of priests and other religious guys. And it's called the Motion Picture Production Code. And it's run by some moralistic call, uh, guy called Hayes. And so every production had to pass the rules of this very strict code. And so, of course, there was no nudity. There was no sex. There was no. There were so many things. So let me give you, before I get to my primary example that I wanted to talk about, there's the scene in Casablanca where Humphrey Bogart has a conversation with Victor Laszlo, and he says, ask your wife yeah. why, why he won't give, give him the exavesis. And so she comes to him in the middle of the night to his room yeah. and threatens to kill him. She pulls out a gun and says, I've tried to be reasonable with you. Now I'm going to kill you. Give me those visas. And he's like, you know, he's like, pull your trigger. You'll be doing me a favor. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> you know, and then, of course, she drops the gun. She says, oh, Rick, I can't. I can't. I love you too much. And then they're they're kissing and everything. And then fade out. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Gee, what happened? Okay. Right. Fade up. And <laughs> everybody's fully clothed. You know, he's still got his double-breasted thing, and he's, but he's, you know, smoking the post-coital cigarette. And, you know, and then they have their conversation. So, I mean, everybody in the audience knows that they had sex, right? But the Hayes office is like, okay, you've got to make sure. Look, she's married. They can't have adultery. Adultery is against the code. Right. You can't even, uh, less, unless everybody who had it gets killed. Right. Like a prostitute has to die at the end. So, um and then we're going to kill them off. So, so they had to make it look like they never really add sex. But of course, everybody in the audience is like, oh, okay, I think we get this. You know, like, like their Hitchcock was famous for like when he wanted to suggest people were having sex, they'd be like on a train and they'd start kissing and then he'd cut to the train going into a tunnel. Uh, oh, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So all these little tricks filmmakers had to get around the Hayes office, but. This is the one that really gets me. And it gets me not just because of back in 1942, but it gets me why we love this movie. You know, it's playing in like 12 theaters right here in my neighborhood. And the the guy, the, the, um, the Vichy, French Vichy uh, colonel, you know, the, the played by, what's his name? Uh, um, Cloud Rains. Yes. Yeah. Right. So he's this he's this charming scoundrel. You know, he he talks back to the Germans and stuff like that. He's like, well, I'm Vichy, but technically independent of you people. And, you know, and he's like and, and, and he's very, very cynical and stuff like that. And, and, and but you love him. Right. Because he's just like really funny. He's got some of the best lines. Yeah. And yet he's running a prostitution ring. He's selling visas for sex. Right. And now the Hayes office and some of the books I've got are like, they're just constantly, okay, you have got to make it absolutely clear. There's no way this guy can sell visas for sex with young. That is white slavery. There's no way you can do that. And then, but it's obvious in the movie, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. This is like, it's like they have that meeting with, with Laszlo and Ingrid Bergman and they leave. And then somebody comes in and goes, uh, Colonel, we have another uh, visa problem. And then he stands up, goes to the mirror, and he adjusts his tie. And, uh-huh. and, he, does his and he goes, show her in. Yes. <laughs> I know. Well, and that's where it is, like, interesting to, like, I would just be curious to know how that actually made it past the Hayes Code, you know? Like, because they were kind of rushing production and, like, really trying to get everything 
you know, out to premiere so soon? Was there some sort of like rushed agreement where maybe like it was it didn't go through the official screenings or you know there's, the a, there's a resource problem yeah there's a resource problem because uh, hollywood collectively 11 studios were producing almost 600 movies a year yeah so wow. i don't know who how, you know what the budget of the hayes office was but i'm sure there was a finite number of people you know like the fbi the justice department can only prosecute so many criminals a year even though there's a lot more criminals so that might have been part of it but my point is today how come the Me Too movement isn't all over this thing? How come they don't have a ring of protesters around every theater <laughs> showing costume? It's like, this guy has got a prostitution ring. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. Like, he, he is, like you kind of mentioned, almost like the original Harvey Weinstein, right? He's just... He is. I mean, and there's that whole big plot point where that girl comes to him and actually that girl who the actress who plays the hungarian wife who's only been married six weeks and she comes she goes monsieur would it be a bad thing if 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 i did something very very bad but i did it for my husband so that we could go to america you know and stuff like and they never tell you what the hell she's talking about Uh you know but she does say it's like He's promised to give you a visa. And she goes, yes, but I must do a bad thing. Okay, what's the bad thing? I don't know. Yeah. And so that's when he goes over there and lets the guy win at roulette. So they have the money and she doesn't have to have sex with them. Right. But, I mean, that's very obvious. I mean, you'd have to be an idiot not to know what was going on there. Right? Right. Uh, even though it's never said, it wasn't in the script. So you could just, like, give it to the Hayes office guy and he's, like, reading the script. And I don't know. Maybe he just misses misses the context that is so obvious from everything else. Right, right. Yeah, he's just speed reading through it and just doesn't notice it. And then they get the script But it's just back. funny that I, nobody is criticizing this now. Or maybe they're like, look, it's a, you know, it's sort of like, you know, remember when uh, before um, the first President Bush died a few years ago, you know, he was in his 90s and he kept like pinching girls' butts and stuff like that. He was doing like really weird behavior. Are you talking about the current, guy, the then, current president? Who's no, 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 like no. The, the, the original. <laughs> It was just a joke. No, no, the the no the one that, the current one isn't eighties like seventy something. But his dad, he was the president in in um, eighty eight to ninety two. Okay, yeah, H W. The H W. Bush, okay. right? So he, I remember him. You don't, but I mean, he was there, and he. Um, he got really kind of weird near the end there, and nobody, nobody, everybody's like, you know what? Who gives a shit if he's pinching a girl's leg? They go, oh, slap him, and they're just like, you know, if I did that, of course, I'd be in jail for six months, right, or longer. It's like the older, <laughs> but if it's a, the older you get, the more you can yeah. get away with, because people are like, are we even going to try to correct this or just like let him, you know, just let him die peacefully at some point like just yeah i mean he's half in the bag anyway so whatever right but yeah so i don't know if there's a certain amount of that and that's what they're kind of doing with this movie they're like okay we're not gonna go after this movie now after 80 years everybody who was involved in it is dead um but still it is it is kind of a weird thing yeah yeah i i'm with you on that especially because with the haze code the haze code set aside what i was going to say is the U.S. government, after the war was declared, they really turned to Hollywood for propaganda to help sell the war to Americans. And that's because so many Americans were still isolationist mentality. 
and you know so when it came to europe they were okay killing asian people okay but they just didn't want to kill kill white people well and part of it too is even despite world war one you know they were not they they were not anti-germans you know i mean there were over i think it was like 1.3 million german immigrants or first generation germans in the u.s in 1941 and that was true including my own family by the way oh wow yeah and that yeah i mean my dad my dad is is full german and he wore a u.s uniform and actually by the time he got out of basic uh germany had surrendered he was on his way to the pacific but um he would have fought the Germans if, you know, well, he'd fought his, he could have been shooting his own people for all he knew. Right. And, and, you know, that population, that demographic was second only to Italian immigrants. And so the studio, right. the only studio with an anti-Nazi movie in the pipeline was Warner Brothers studio. And yeah, so baby. The, the government really lucky bastards, <laughs> they really needed <laughs> Warner Brothers. They really needed this movie. So that could be they another did. reason why the Hayes code was kind of, to you know shuffled to the side and they're like yeah just let it you know good point let's give the people a little you know a little you know dirty minded a little prostitution yeah, like little, you gotta yes. give them a reason to watch it you know it can't just be like <laughs> this you know cute little bible story in the theaters you know like let's let's give them a reason to pay attention and watch it I think it's they got lucky on on so many accounts, but it it is interesting to see just how much of a propaganda machine this whole movie is. I think the first time I watched it, I was pretty young and I didn't quite understand any of that. But just watching it and researching it this week for this podcast, it's like you realize that you are just watching an advertisement. Like, are you ever if you're ever driving down the road and you listen to the radio and then all of a sudden you realize you've been listening to commercials for the last like five minutes but you didn't realize it because somehow your brain was still entertained right and it, it almost felt like that where you're like wait what i can't believe i was just like watching this commercial for the u.s government like well and that that is part of the evolving art of advertising that when i was in it it was very controversial like making advertising not even looking like advertising it's actually content which is easier to fake online than it is maybe on a on the radio like you're talking about but online you can make a lot of content look like content when it's actually just advertising right you know and it's really up to the guy you know tmz probably doesn't even say this is an advertisement someone like usa today would say in tiny little letters this is an ad right <laughs> well or even you know, but not everybody has those ethics but right or even on the radio you know i guess when i'm thinking on the radio of like an ad where you know like maybe two djs will be talking about something you know and they're like how are you feeling this morning oh i'm feeling pretty good you know i just really love sleeping on my sleep number mattress and you know the other person <laughs> and i'm like yeah man i wasn't i wasn't super happy about my sleep number mattress when i had one but like i really like one and then pretty soon in your conversation their conversation you're like this is an ad like get out of here you know and then you change the channel but yeah i i think well but that used to be the way advertising started both in radio and tv they were organic inside the show there wasn't like okay let's cut to the commercial break and then show a commercial it was like like what you're saying it's like somebody would say oh here i've got uh, you know whatever you know coca-cola this is real i love coca-cola here i'm gonna pour this for everybody you know blah 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 so and maybe and people just get used to the crassness of it. But but you're right. Casablanca is just so I mean, if you view it through that lens, it's such obvious propaganda because 
Rick starts out as being the the ultimate isolationist skeptic, right? He keeps saying, I stick my neck out for no one. And he says that several times. And, and uh, you know, Louis, whatever gave you the thought, I give a crap about Laszlo and getting away. You know, so he's like making all these statements and everybody's, and that's when, like when she comes to his room, he says, go ahead and shoot. I'm going to die in Casablanca. I don't care. It's a good place for it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but, and then he makes a conversion, right? So at the end, he's a patriot. Yeah. Which is what the movie, the message of the movie is. That's what the U.S. government wanted. You got to support this war, man. We need you guys to come in on this one. And that's where. These Nazis are bad. That's where Warner Brothers Studios just got so lucky with so many different aspects where not only did they have this script immediately after Pearl Harbor that nobody else wanted. All of Hollywood had been avoiding the whole Nazi thing for a whole decade during the thirties. But then also they Absolutely. already had fantastic talent, you know, with Ingrid Berman, Berman and, you know, Humphrey Bogart. And I mean, it ended up being a commercial box office hit. It won multiple Academy Awards, including best picture and best director. And then as we've already kind of talked about, you know, like that North African takeover happened just days before they ended up releasing it in the theater they were able to really push it through production i mean so so there were so many aspects where they just got completely lucky with the movie yeah and that was like the first victory of the entire war so everybody was like just like world war well thank god for the americans they saved the day again which we love, right? Yeah. We just love to say that we're going to wait for 10 years to come and help you guys. But what we do, we're going to save the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And then everybody was, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, I, like I, uh, I guess maybe the best example I can come up with is somebody who went to like a big state school who gives like zero shits about like their school pride you know like they just don't care and then all of a sudden like you know the basketball That's team me. comes like what school did you go to i went to southern illinois university because they had a film school but it was twenty five thousand kids it was a big school i mean it is as big as uh, ohio state in terms of population right so like if you have no school spirit but all of a sudden siu like comes at you know, like to be like the biggest basketball champion in the NCAA or, you know, whatever. Then all of a sudden you're going to be like sporting the sweatshirt, you know, like, hey, I went to SIU yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. Uh, whenever it was that you went to college. That's, so, that is exactly true. Um, yeah, that's kind of the effect that the movie had on a lot of Americans. So and, and it just still even today, I, 80 years has so many great lines that I think a lot of people use and they don't actually realize what movie it's from. Yeah, like shocked, shock. I'm shocked, shocked to find gambling in this casino. People use that all the time, and I'd, they probably have no idea. Mm-hmm. But actually, in terms of great lines, the three people wrote it. Two were twins, and the other guy wrote the serious parts, and the twins wrote the funny parts. Actually, I always say the first half of the movie is like just a pure comedy. It's just like one-liners, one after the other. Boom, boom, boom. But they're played deadpan. You know, and there's no laugh track and the, there's the, the music doesn't go, you know, yeah. you know, none of those kind of things. It's all dead plan. Uh, but it's just like it's just everything is laughing. I love it when they're like he's sitting there with the Nazis and they're like they're like, well, you are not all always so careful and neutral, Mr. Blaine. We even know you were running guns in Ethiopia against the fascists. And he's, you know, he, he like t- reaches over, takes the guy's notebook and goes, are my eyes really brown? So, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. It's, we have a whole dossier on you. <laughs> My eyes really brown. Yeah. It's yeah. Or, yeah, I mean and I've even heard people who I'm pretty sure have never seen this movie say I stick my neck out for no one, you know? So even, right. you know, beyond just the, you know, some of the funny deadpan humor, you know, just some of the really great lines that have amazing endured stuff. time. So, yeah. So why don't we cross the river sticks into, okay. So it goes from being a great commercial box office success. The Warner brothers are the luckiest sons of bitches. They're swimming in money. Yeah. You know, their wives are like one of those things where there's just a giant tub of money and they're just yeah. swimming in. Okay. It. And, and then it goes to the Academy Awards. It wins multiple Academy Awards, winning, uh, including best picture, best director, and, and some other supporting actors and stuff. Everybody is nominated, but, but, it, it, uh, but not everybody won, but still it won, it, it won several awards, which is awesome. Yeah, it couldn't be. Uh, nobody could be happier. But then here we go. Like two years later, America has won. The war is over. Germany surrendered. Japan surrendered. And throughout the war, at least the part that we were in, the Soviets were our allies. All of a sudden, as soon as the war ends, suddenly they start kind of tiptoeing to be our adversaries and the Cold War starts. And Roosevelt, the liberal president, four to four, elected four times, he's dead. And so he's gone. The Republicans resurge. You know, the pendulum swifts the other way. And all of a sudden, we become a very, very ultra-conservative country and a very anti-communist country. And in addition to trying to get communists out of other parts of the federal government, they focus on, when I say they, I'm talking about the Congress of the United States had a very famous committee called the House Un-American Activities Committee. And they were very, very anti-communist. And they focused on Hollywood as a place because Hollywood can influence so many people, just as it did in World War II with Casablanca. Now they're worried about, well, these same fucking leftists mm-hmm. yeah. are going to be pro-communist sympathizers. And we've got to do something about it. Calling the House Un-American Activities Committee to order, Chairman J. Parnell Thomas of New Jersey opens an inquiry into possible communist penetration of the Hollywood film industry. The committee is seeking to determine if Red Party members have reached the screen with subversive propaganda. A long list of prominent motion picture witnesses appear before the committee. Speaking for the films, Eric Johnston, president of the Motion Picture Association, talks frankly concerning the attitude of the producers. We're accused of having communists and communist sympathizers in our employ. Undoubtedly, there are such persons in Hollywood, as you will find elsewhere in America. But we neither shield nor defend them. We want them exposed. We're not responsible for the political or economic ideas of any individual. But we are responsible for what goes on the screen. We guard that with great care. If communists have attempted to inject their propaganda into the motion picture, they have failed miserably. We will never permit them to succeed. And I can't say that Casablanca was the only movie on their shit list. It was, it's definitely uh, in the top 10. Yeah. And so everybody involved in this movie, including Humphrey Bogart, including Ingrid Bergman, including the Warner Brothers, is dragged in front of this committee 
and questioned. Their loyalty is questioned and are forced to, if they don't actually recant, they are, which Humphrey Bogart eventually does. Ends up, it's just like 1984, George Orwell just keeps apologizing. Everybody's apologizing for being involved in that movie. Right. And the people that don't, like the writers, like Henry Koch, gets blacklisted and has to move to Europe and to avoid jail. Yeah. So that's kind of a crazy turnaround, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's interesting, once again, just to draw a parallel to today. Like, look at how many actors and actresses are having to apologize for playing certain roles in previous movies that were highly regarded at the time that they came out. It's not as bad as them having to, you know, like never work again and move to Europe, but they're basically pressured, not from the government, but just from people on Twitter, probably bots, I don't know, and say like, oh, I'm so sorry, I would have never played whatever role that was. Same, same problems, just 80 years later, Mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah. No, you're right. And uh, like anybody that ever worked on a Woody Allen film or whatever, and oh, yeah, he was the best director in the world. He won all these Academy. No, no, I hate him now. I hate him. I hate him. Yeah. Please forgive Um, me. I know not what I do. Yeah, exactly. So, and I guess we should, uh, I don't know, do do we have much more that we need to do? I think we're kind of wrapping this up, right? Did we miss anything? So, you know, the other interesting part of this movie, too, is the character of Sam, who's played by Dooley Wilson, is one of the first, if not the first African-American to appear in a U.S. film, not as a slave or a servant or a janitor. Right. And once again, this is 80 years ago. So the the pianist who highly regarded in the club and a friend to Rick. And I think, yeah, I, I thought that was a very interesting aspect of the film as well. How they, it seems like they were early breakers of barriers it is a breaker of barrier especially since we're talking the same time when like gone with the wind was made and you can look at how black people were portrayed in that of course that was the historical context but still ingrid bergman the first time she goes she goes oh who's the boy playing the piano yeah ingrid bergman says this right Okay, the boy playing the piano, she knows who he is because they knew each other in Paris, as we learn five minutes later, yeah. right? Just the, the use of that expression, yeah. calling a 45-year-old man the boy. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, it's not not entirely, you know, racing across the finish line as far as racial equality. But, you know, you got to start No, it wasn't. And remember, <laughs> you got to start. Yeah, okay. That's yeah. <laughs> 80 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was it was at least twenty plus years before the the uh, civil rights yeah, movement. Yeah, yeah. So, but but let me ask you. I mean, did, was this a worthy subject? Did do you think that this film had enough twists and turns historically and politically and socially that it was worthy of a podcast? I think it does because you know we've really focused a lot on like the propaganda aspect of it and how so many movies back then how it how studios were actively trying to not make anti-nazi movies right i i think it's just a really interesting topic to cover in general and you know the 80th anniversary of casablanca is a great way to like a great excuse to cover it so yeah i'm i wouldn't say it's like one specific scandal but i think it definitely fits within the realm of scandal sheet And it's a nice topic that I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot about. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it 
if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! You can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook, or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com. See you next time on Scandal Sheet! Copyright 2023. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.